sharp, swallow you whole. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. Find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Ten thousand dollars for me by myself. For that you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. You yell shots, we've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of the boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. A what? You're gonna need a bigger potion. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. Now, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. Just when you think you are out, we are here to pull you back into the Jaws obsession. Thank you very much for returning for another episode where we are here to share with you, prove to you, convince you, or remind you that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. Welcome back to episode 72, the Jaws MacGuffin. What is a MacGuffin? Or to be more specific, what is the Jaws MacGuffin? This is a term used by Alfred Hitchcock that will come into play now that we have a prequel to Jaws being released around the world in mere hours, and we are going to get into that. That is the uh, that is going to be on the back half of this episode. We have so much to cover here on the eve of the worldwide publication of the Book of Quint, the prequel to Jaws. I am your host, Ryan Daco, and author of the Book of Quint, and I want to welcome you back. Thank you for your time and investing in coming back to the Jaws obsession to learn more about the greatest movie of all time, but also... Going forward, this episode, we are now going to explain exactly why a prequel to Jaws is going to change the narrative going forward when you watch Jaws. It's very important. This is a very important episode. It was a topic that I've wanted to get to for a while now, and it just so happens, it just felt that this is the right time. On the eve of the publication of the novel, November 15th is when Amberley Publishing over in the United Kingdom is hitting go. And that's when the book is officially going to be on sale around the UK, Europe, Australia. I have saw it on Amazon Japan. The official rollout date in North America for United States and Canada is going to be January 23rd. But now, and we're going to talk to this, and I'm going to mention this in a little bit, is that now there are companies that are stepping up, making the Book of Quint available to North American readers before Christmas. This is very exciting. There's a lot happening here, and we're going to try to catch everybody up into that. 
Uh, we also have listener emails. We have a listener email that was asking what is going on in the holiday roast scene with Den Herder and Charlie. Um, there's some specific questions that uh, that he had, and I'm going to get into that. We're going to break down the doc sequence in just a little bit because there is so much going on in that doc sequence. We also have some book reviews, announcements, and excitement that's building it's only hours away, hours away that the Book of Quint, it's very exciting that the Book of Quint is now, it's almost like Sasquatch that, that I'm getting photos sent where people are seeing it in bookshops and uh, there's rare sightings that there, and it looks gorgeous. The Book of Quint that Amberly Publishing is putting out is a trade paperback. It is the same dimensions as that hardcover release that limited edition 300 hardcover that was done for the Indiegogo campaign. So it's the same size. And it has a gold foil embossed cover. And the cover just stands right out. You can see that Quint logo. Just He looks fabulous right on that cover. It reflects the light. And it just stands right out when you see it in the center of a bookstore. Uh, we're going to put some photos up of the early photos, early sightings of the Book of Quint on our show notes. Let me just remind everyone that our show notes will always be over at our Telegram channel, at JawsOB, over on Telegram. We also have Instagram.com at Book of Quint. I will also have some photos over there to go along with this episode uh, with the title card that I usually post over there. One day left, but we had a 31-day countdown to the Book of Quint over at Instagram at Book of Quint. And I want to thank everyone for going over there and for sharing those photos. We had the Henry Cavill fan sites, and they were able to uh, pass the word around that there is this a great prequel to Jaws coming out as a it's a novel and that we feel that Henry Cavill would be great for the role as, as Quint and we're going to get this into his hands so he can read the book. A lot of excitement that built up around that. All those images for the 31-day countdown were made with composite images from uh, different AI platforms that when you assemble that all together what I did was, if you really want to have some fun, what you do is you save all those images to a folder on your computer. Go to the slideshow feature of that folder and hit play. So the images just scroll in random order. And then go over and hit play on your favorite soundtrack, on a soundtrack of some epic score of some sort. On Instagram, someone sent me the score. They had the certain cards going by of the Book of Quint with the score to Thin Red Line, which is that epic Terrence Malick war film, World War II film. You actually get the feeling of what a Book of Quint feature film would look like, the gravitas, the cinematic scope of it. I put on the, uh, the Shawshank prison theme, the Stoic theme by Thomas Newman from the Shawshank Redemption soundtrack. When you play that with the images as they're scrolling by, these images that were on the 31-day countdown to the book of Quint. I got chills on my arms because you're actually seeing the possibility of what we're dealing with here and what we're trying to show universal, that there is a um, there is a possibility of something very great on the horizon here. All it takes is for the fans all to stand together and in one voice say, this would make a great film. And how do you do that? That's with the book of Quint. By supporting the book of Quint, by talking about it, by getting it out there into the mainstream consciousness, by talking about it with your friends and family, the power has been put back into the hands of the 
fans of great cinema that now we can actually show that this prequel would be a cinematic experience that we would all enjoy. Very interesting. When you read the book, you can go back and see the significance of each of those 31 frames, how those all line up together as you read the novel. Someone asked me why was my name not on the cover of the Book of Quint. And I want to say that that was a request of mine to Amberley Publishing that they that I did not want my name on the front cover of the book. Now, why is that? Because typically you have a novel is released and you usually have the title of the novel and then you have the author's name. Well, in my mind, there's going to be more books in the future. There's, there's going to be other books and there's chances to have names on covers. But with this one, with the book of Quint, the character of Quint is so important to all of us. He needs to be on the center stage. And that's why that logo, that logo was very important to not only the, um, to, to the book of Quint, but for the impact to the reader. When you walk up and when you first hold the book, I did not want the attention to be drawn to who is this Ryan Daco guy. I want all 100% of your focus to go right at Quint on the pulpit, the book of Quint. And that was designed by me specifically to focus on that logo. So that's why I specifically requested to have my name on the spine of the book instead of the front. Another reason why is now when you want to take an image, if you want to go to your favorite location, your favorite reading spot, if you have a favorite chair or if you have a favorite uh, beachfront that you go to and you want to take a photo with the Book of Quint, now you can do that and the impact is more bold when you just see the logo and the book and the silhouette just showing at you. Nothing else there to distract you. That's what was my vision. And to see Amberly Publishing help create that vision and push it out there, it's very important because this uh, character of Quint, uh, we do not take lightly. He means so much to so many, and it's very endearing. And this story, is in so, it, it's so important. There are, there are many elements of this story. We're still not going to be talking about spoilers. We're going to give everyone a chance to read or uh, to, to read the book of Quint. Before we start talking about elements that are in there, the drama and the narrative and the characters that, aside from Quint, I wanted this story to be held in the highest regard. Maybe that's a little long, longer way of explaining why my name is not on the cover, but that was done on purpose and that was requested by myself. And exciting to see how Amberly Publishing and Nick Hayward, the CEO, we have to give him a round of applause because that logo is the that's the heart of the book. He did a great job. They went from silver to gold. Remember the limited edition was a silver embossed a, a silver foil stamping and now you have a gold foil. You have a gold stamping which is everything worked out so well. I'm very very happy. I'm very proud. You have to be as a Jaws fan, you have to just be proud to see something of this quality get pushed on into the world in record time. Record time. Remember this was 2 months from contract to shelf unheard of in the publishing world, unheard of. Amberly Publishing and, and Dave Bowen over there and uh, Nicola, the editor, and my editor, Sean, everybody just came out and just worked their tail off to see this happen. And I know I'm, and Phil over on, and, and with the, at the PR, at the publicity side of things over at Amberly, uh, a round of applause for everyone there to make this happen, to be on the eve of publication it's great to see. It's great to see it happening all at once like this. The Book of Quint, the Kindle version. Everyone's at, I've been asked before about an ebook. Some of you might you need to have larger print. With ebooks, it's easier. You enlarge the page 
the font size. You can go to different fonts. Ebook version is on Kindle. It's listing on Kindle. Over on Instagram, uh, user JTLaw67. Any idea what time my Kindle pre-order will show up in my library? I'm on U.S. Central Time. I responded. I said, I'm going to have to guess after uh, around midnight between Tuesday into Wednesday. So uh, as, as we turn the calendar into November 15th, around midnight, according to whatever location your Kindle account is set on, my guess is that that's when the global book launch is going to uh, go into effect and that book will be released, that title, the Book of Quint title will be released to your Kindle uh, when that date turns to the 15th at midnight. But then again, that's my guess. This is the first time I've ever been involved with a global book launch this size. It's all a learning experience for myself and we're all learning this together. These are the ropes. So it's exciting and uh, just hang tight. Uh, my guess is that it's when uh, when midnight tonight at your time, it's going to show up there so you can start reading right away. U.S. customers, U.S. readers to the Book of Quint, aside from the ebook, which you will be able to get at your Kindle or on the Kindle app on your phones. If you have a uh, iPhone or Android, there's a Kindle app that you can download and then you can actually read the book via that way. But for those who want to get the book before Christmas, and you're in the U.S., look who shows up riding over the horizon, a little store called Walmart. Yes, Walmart, one of the biggest stores in the country. Chain stores is now listing the Book of Quint. Very exciting. They are listing the Book of Quint over at the Walmart app and on the Walmart site. Let me just check this now. Yes, right over at walmart.com. If you go into the, uh, there's a link to our link tree that will be in the description of this broadcast on whatever listening platform you're on. You go to that, you're going to see the link for Walmart. Just click on that. It's going to take you right over there, walmart.com and on the app. It's now listing the Book of Quint in paperback. And get this, they have a Black Friday deal already on the Book of Quint. If you were to order it today, it will arrive at your address for free on December 1st. So it looks like they have a two-week window. They are now selling the Book of Quint for $18.84, and that is going to be delivered to you if you are in the United States. Um, just make sure you get that order in as soon as possible. Right now, they're looking at getting it there by December 1st. That's what it says on Walmart's website. Very exciting. And now, does this mean Walmart will be carrying it in the stores? With that has yet to be determined. I am just getting information as it's coming in. I don't know the full scope of that. As we do know, the North American rollout is still January 23rd for those books to be guaranteed in the stores. But right now, what's very exciting is there's a way for U.S. and Canada readers to get the Book of Quint before Christmas. So we have Walmart carrying the Book of Quint now. That's no small store, pretty big. And we're very excited about that. Yeah, we're still looking at Blackwell's over in the UK. They're selling the book at for $18.94, and that's including delivery to the United States. Blackwell's is stepping up. You can find that link over at the link tree as well. Remember, we still have the autograph plates that I signed and numbered, the limited edition. There's only 100 of them. Those have been put into 100 books of Quint over at Cole's Books in the UK. You can find that link in our link tree as well, Coles, C-O-L-E-S, books, over in the UK. If you contact them, you can order the Book of Quint. Price doesn't change. It's just you get one of those autographed plates put into the book. So a great gift idea there. Great to see now that we thought that there was going to be a delay with North America 
it was going to be tough to get books by uh, Christmas time for people that wanted to get books for family or friends or for holiday gift shopping ideas. Not anymore. Not after the Walmart factor. Just go and you can Google Book of Quint. You can put my name in there. Ryan Daco is the author. There's many vendors come up now in many different countries. Whatever country you're in, if you go to bookfinder.com, that's also in the link tree, going to read where you are um, searching from. And it's going to look at all the different avenues of how to get the Book of Quint to you, all the different vendors. Everything's working out. It's great to see happening. And it's great to see the reviews coming in. Five-star reviews are flooding in, and uh, thank you very much for those early readers like Kevin in New Jersey. Unbelievable prequel that honors the Jaws legacy. There's a five-star review. Uh, Dale, a modern masterpiece, another five-star review. Miss Robin writes in, haunting and impossible to put down. These are all the uh, just great reviews that are coming in, five stars. Uh, Waterstones, we had Hayden Wheeler left his five-star review. And then Kimberly Lawson writing the compelling story of a beloved character, a must-read. These are all great, and what these do is these help curious readers who might be thinking about diving in. It is no small task to invest yourself into a 400-plus page novel. For these reviews, it helps for maybe someone who is on the fence to make that decision and jump right in to the Book of Quint. But it also helps the algorithm on these sites. Maybe these books will be in the brick-and-mortar stores for some of these vendors like Barnes & Noble in the U.S. or Waterstones in the U.K. And let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. Remember, this book launch, this is a very important three months here, November to December, December to January, January to February. We've had some requests about the Book of Quint in Spanish by some of the Cavill fans down in South America. Already, Amberly is looking into that. Amberly now needs to look into going to a, a publisher that is in South America that can now translate the Book of Quint in a very accurate way and then publish that as well. So that's being looked into. Or can we get the Book of Quint into languages other than English? That's uh, on the horizon. That is on the horizon. Uh, I can't make this announcement yet, but the major news is that there is an audiobook coming, and a very, very big company has licensed the audiobook rights to the Book of Quint, and that is in development at this stage. So I'm working behind the scenes to find out more information. But that is going to be very exciting. The audiobook to the Book of Quint, it's going to be a game changer in that it is going to allow you to listen to the Book of Quint by a professional narrator while you're driving in your car or walking the dog around the block. Agent Bill Pettit of the William Pettit Agency, we are still in current development for the Book of Quint from book to screen. There are meetings that are taking place. As we saw, the SAG-AFTRA committee approves deal with studios to end the historic strike. This was from the Los Angeles Times on November 8th. The, the strike is coming to an end as the deal is worked out between the studios and the unions. The momentum can now start picking up on the development aspects from book to screen. So these are very important couple of months ahead here. And it just so happens we have this global rollout of the novel of the Book of Quint. If an audio book can get released as well, there's there are going to be a lot of people in higher places on in the car. They can just reach over and press on their Audible and, and on their Audible account, press play on the Book of Quint, and then they're going to be able to hear and visualize as they're driving the uh, prologue and chapter one, and then they'll just go right in. And maybe that's going to be the ticket. Maybe that's going to be the deal maker that says this movie should be made. So 
Universal, we're coming for you and we're going to be, we're going to have a dynamite audiobook headed your way. Very exciting, very exciting time. But it's also exciting time for Jaws fans because we're going to be taking Jaws to new horizons. And that's why episode 72 is very important. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but this is very important stuff. And it just so happens everything's working out. Everything's working out. All these pieces are falling into place to give us the clearer picture on this jigsaw puzzle that this whole process has been. Remember, I still believe, I still believe that we have, that, that, that our, what is our goal here? What is our goal here? Our goal here is 2025. Can Universal put out the prequel to Jaws in the year 2025, the 50th anniversary of the greatest movie of all time? And can that prequel be such a high quality that it adds to the uh, excellence, that it adds to the excellence, that it enhances the performances of those wonderful actors that we're not doing a remake, there's no remakes or reboots needed, that Jaws can be great if you know more to the backstory of these wonderful characters, especially our character Quint. And that is what we're looking at, is that can this happen? I still believe that it can happen. On the eve of the... A global book launch of the Book of Quint. What we've done here is we've defeated odds. We've actually gone against uh, general wisdom, is that it can't be done in such, in such a time, that a novel could not have been written. Remember, this, this, was, this started, the process started in August of 2020. There was a 14-month research period, 12 months of writing, and then a whole year of finding the perfect agent, Bill Pettit, the man behind the scenes that actually is, that increased the profile of this project to get it to where it needs to be, to where it's taken seriously by Hollywood Studios. And then he was able to, we were able to get that into publication with Amberly Publishing coming to play and then in a record time, roll it out to the world like this. It's very exciting. I'm telling you, that's that song, Still Believe. Who listens to that song? This, this guy. Do you remember this guy from the Lost Boys? That's right. This is Tim Capello from the Lost Boys soundtrack. You remember this guy? That's right. We're going to march this road, climb this hill. We still believe, just like Tim Capella told us, Tim Capello told us in The Lost Boys, we still believe. I have a good story about this guy. That This, this song means a lot more to me. I guess this, this man, Tim Capello, who sang that. Remember in The Lost Boys at the, at the party scene when they're at, in Santa Carla? It's the famous scene. He's a saxophone player, and he's a bodybuilding guy. He's muscled out, and he's on stage, and he's singing the song. Well, this song reminded me of my, reminded me of my childhood. I used to sit around uh, the house listening to the audio cassette of this with my, sister, my older sister, Tiffany. About one year ago, maybe it was a little bit more than a year ago, maybe, I was finished with the writing but I was going through the revisions of the novel that I would print them out into these big, giant, spiral-bound 400-page manuscripts, and I would go with a red pen through each page. We're talking 139,000 words, and I'm finding errors and typos and all sorts of things and sentence structure issues that you normally don't see on a computer, so you have to rework that and rework it and rework it. I went through three different 
uh, revisions like that where I would just redo it, go back into the files, change everything, print it out again, and then read it again with a red pen. All in all, the book went through eight different revisions to what you are seeing now rolled out by Amberly. A year ago, I was in the middle of that process and I, and I was in a time crunch. I had to get this done because we had to get it to the printers. Uh, you're going around October. I, we had to get it to the printers because we needed to get the 300 books printed out and then shipped out to the backers of the Indiegogo campaign. So there was a lot of pressure at that time. One of the things that came up was Tim Capello, the, the man that was singing in the Lost Boys, came was on a tour where he was performing. And he was coming through Rochester, New York, which is only an hour west of Syracuse. So it's right there, right? And my sister Tiffany called me up and she said, hey, we're going to see Tim Capello. Remember the Lost Boys? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, he's got that song. And uh, I go, well, yeah, I go, but I, I can't because I promised myself uh, no no vacation, no extra anything until the book was done. And she goes, come on, you could take one Friday. And I said, no, I can't. I really can't. I have to just get this done. It was a thing that where uh, when uh, it's just a commitment I made. I did not go to the beach for three years. I did not go swimming for three years. I didn't go to any concerts. It was just something that had to be done, and I was just really working hard at this. And Tiffany has always been an influence in my life with music. Older sister, she had all the all the cassettes. She had all these movie soundtracks. You know, when I was younger, and she was four years older than me back in the '80s. So I would listen to those soundtracks. One of the things that I always regretted was back in the 90s when I was working as an usher at a movie theater, a local movie theater at Carousel Mall. Uh, my sister, she was living in Rochester. She was going to school in Rochester at the time. Uh, she was at a university, at, at Nazareth University in Rochester, and she calls and she says, hey, I got tickets to see Johnny Cash with uh, for, for you and Dad. He's coming to Rochester. And like a dope, I said, no, I got to go to work. So I turned, I did not go to the show. And so there was Johnny Cash performing with June Carter Cash right there. And uh, I missed my chance to see one of my favorite singers of all time, one of my favorite musical artists of all time. I missed my chance because Johnny Cash would go on to, and then he would shortly, then he would pass away a few years later. And I never got a chance to see that. So I always regretted turning that down. Uh, and not seeing and going to see Johnny Cash and just saying, wait. So I don't even remember what I did with the money I earned that day, but the the memory of not going to see Johnny Cash was sat really heavy with me for the longest time. I said, I'll never, I'll never do that again. Uh, whenever something comes up, I will make time and I will just go do it because you never know you're going to get another chance. And as this was going on, I got into this work, this obsessive work work format with this novel about writing it. And uh, it was just from my current work uh, working on high voltage power lines and then coming back on my days off working on the novel, then going back to work. It was a lot of long days. So as I was coming down the pipe, I was really frantic and, and manic about getting this done. So when the Tim Capello concert came up, and it's, it might not be as significant as maybe a Bruce Springsteen or uh, Elton John or something of a a larger concert or a larger venue, but he meant something to me. Tim, this uh, Mr. Capello, this song, this song meant something to me because it was the Lost Boy soundtrack. It was, and it was a movie that uh, uh, that I liked when I was younger, and it was something that Tiffany and I kind of shared a bond over. So I turned that down. Got the book finished. So the book gets mailed out everywhere. Success. We get the book to all the backers before Christmas. Everything's there. And now uh, there's like a, maybe a calm before the storm because now we have to get that book into 
Uh, we have to go find an agent now. Now we have to go find a publisher. There's a whole new battle that has to happen. Uh, meanwhile, I'm recording Jaws Obsession episodes. I was about to record episode 50, 50. So my family all comes over to our house here in Syracuse. And Tiffany comes over and with uh, for Christmas. And on Christmas morning, she gives me this present. And I open it up, and it's a framed picture of Mr. Capello, Tim Capello, with his saxophone. And he autographed it. And it says, to Ryan, I still believe. And uh, I lost it. I, my, I, I lost it. I had tears in my eyes. Um, <laughs> and to this day, I have this. And, and for, for, so for the last year, I've had this image. I've had this framed autographed photo to Ryan, I still believe, Tim Capello, hanging above, uh, right next to my computer here. And it, uh, why did I get so emotional when uh, she handed me this? And it's, uh, it might seem silly, but it's because it reminded me of the sacrifices that you have to make as you try to reach your goals, that sometimes you have to, to sacrifice those little moments. It's not just that I sacrificed seeing Mr. Capello in concert or seeing him live or meeting him. I also sacrificed time with my family, with my kids, to make sure that this project got to where it needed to be. Um, and that's so when I look up and I see this photo and it says, I still believe, that song means a lot. Those lyrics mean a lot. But I, I see that and I still believe that we can do this by 2025. I still am in this mindset that we are going to push and push and push until we get an answer. Um, and if we get an answer, no, we get an answer of no, that's all right. But I still believe that we're going to get that answer uh, when we do get the answer, when we do get that option from Universal Pictures. And they say they're going to be in pre-production when they move into pre-production on the Book of Quint. This is a story that needs to be told. I really do believe that it's important for the future generations learn about the history of the USS Indianapolis, the history of Captain McVeigh, the history of Quint, that these people are not forgotten. I think Universal is going to see that. And when we do get that option, we're going to play, I still believe, by Mr. Tim Capello in full on this broadcast. And we're going to play that whole song. We're going to have fun and we're going to play. <laughs> and because that, that, that song means a lot. It tells me where I was a year ago. Tying back into the Johnny Cash, the missed Johnny Cash concert, that serves as an example for myself is to seize the day, take the opportunity when it's there because you never know when you're going to get another chance. Uh, the wonderfully talented Tim Capello from the Lost Boys soundtrack is serving as an example of what it took to actually make this happen, that we still had this huge mountain to climb and we still have more of the mountain to go. But boy, did we get to a level from one year ago, to be on the eve of the book launch, it's unbelievable. But I still believe in the unbelievable. And that's what's so great about this story. And you can too, that this is not just a book. The Book of Quint is not just a novel. It's the process that is unbelievable. That what you have to go through nowadays to see this, uh, to, to see your uh, vision into reality. I'm nobody special. This is not anything new. This, is not, this has been done many times before. But you can lateral this over if you are starting a business, if you are going through school and you are trying to get that degree, if you are uh, just starting out at the firm or you're just starting out on the factory floor, there are places to go and there are ways to get there. Pull out all the stops and you go full speed. You're going to get there as well. More than just a novel, it's an example of when conventional wisdom says it can't be done, the human spirit finds a way. 
And when enough people get together, when enough people get together, like they did with the book of Quint, it was not just myself. There were many people behind the scenes. And when enough people get to put their talents together, that great things can happen. And that's what this, that's what I, that's what is, uh, that's what's special about right now, about this moment as you're listening to this. And I just wanted to break away from Jaws for a little bit to talk to you about that. Maybe we uh, just went into a little bit of a Lost Boys obsession, but that's okay. That's okay. We can do that here. It's that type of show. And remember, we are going to play, I still believe, in full when we get the word from Universal. That is going to be an epic show. So stay tuned for that. Let's all still believe that that's going to happen. Let's go back to Jaws. And we had an email this email is from Dave Bowen. Remember, Dave is the intrepid sales manager over at Amberly Publishing that it was Hayden Wheeler who organized that uh, Book of Quint reading and the Robert, the celebration of Robert Shaw back in July of uh, this year, last summer, when I went over to England up in West Houghton and we had the books go into the libraries up there. And I met Dave Bowen, who is the sales manager of Amberley. And that's where this whole process started. And now here we are on the Eva publication. Uh, Dave is a huge Jaws fan, extreme Jaws fan, on par with myself, with John Tedder. And he always has all these special questions that he runs by me. And some of these questions are very involved and they could be their own episode. So one question that he had when he said um, he was back watching Jaws again, and he had a question about the Den Herder and Charlie, the guys on the jetty with the holiday roast. We really haven't touched on this scene yet. And why? There's a reason why, because this scene is very important. There is something going on here, and I can't really get into it just yet because we want to go to the Jaws MacGuffin. So we're only going to do partial this scene. This scene we're going to tackle. One of the points that Dave asks is... Uh, what was their plan, these two guys with the holiday roast? They obviously want to hook the shark, but have no idea how large and powerful it is. But once they had it hooked, how did they plan to kill it and land it? Um, this takes place at nighttime, so I can't see if they have any weapons they could use to kill the shark. And then he says, at what point does the shark break the chain attaching the hook to the jetty? When the shark takes the holiday roast bait, it's fair to say that the hook is in the shark's mouth, but after Charlie gets his feet out of the water, the broken piece of the jetty that has been towed out to sea grounds on the shore. So either the hook came out of the shark's mouth or the chain broke. Uh, when Charlie is swimming back to the remains of the jetty, the broken piece turns around in the water and appears to be chasing him. But given the length of chain that would put the shark almost right behind him if the shark is towing the piece of jetty at that point. If the shark subsequently breaks the chain, why did it not catch up to Charlie and devour him? If the shark had already broken the chain at that point, why does the broken jetty turn around so ominously and start to head back to shore, thereby becoming the scariest bit of wood in movie history? When Den Herder and Charlie throw the bait and tire into the water, they say the tide is carrying it out. So surely the tide wouldn't be causing the broken jetty to rotate and then head back to shore. I've got city hands, so I may well be missing some oceanic knowledge that would easily explain all this. So... There we have it. There's from Dave Bowen. That's our sales manager on the street, the one that's going door to door to all the bookshops over there in England. And he's saying that the Book of Quint is selling like hotcakes. Wonderful to see. And he's so passionate about bringing the Book of Quint to the people. It's great to have Dave with us in the Jaws obsession. And this is a great question. What exactly were these two guys planning to do? 
And what exactly happens with the shark and the hook and the holiday roast? It's all very explainable, but once again, in order to get to this conclusion, we have to watch the entire movie of Jaws and take in the clues here. So I'm going to go back to this scene, which is at 24 minutes and 42 seconds in the movie Jaws. So we have Charlie and the Den Herder are on the dock, and here comes the length of chain and the holiday roast. I'm going to pause it right there. The length of chain... It looks like to me that's about 50 feet of chain. I don't know if anyone would dispute that, but that's about 50 feet, 5 zero. Uh, and 50 feet, if you convert that into meters, that's 1515.24 meters. So uh, that's, that's the length of chain we're dealing with here. Now remember, the shark is 25 feet long, according to Quint later on in the movie. That's a 20 footer. 25. Three tons of them. Yeah, so that we're looking at about 50 feet or 15 meters of chain there. So if you think about it, we have 25-foot shark. That would make a half of that, so 25 feet. So really what we're looking at is the shark is 25 feet in front of that dock. So let's all keep, keep in mind that that's where the shark is. It's two body lengths of the shark away from that dock, from that piece of dock in the water. That's later on, so we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let me, let me continue on here. Better catch something. This is my wife's holiday roast. Don't worry about it. $3,000 buys an awful lot of roast. <laughs> okay, so uh, Charlie's tying up the, the chain, wraps it around to the pylon a couple of times. Come and get it! It's taking it right out. Can't we go home? So they do mention that, like Dave, like Dave mentioned, we do see that the tide is taking it right out. We do see that it's carrying out to sea. So what's that mean? That means it's going from high to low tide, okay? So remember, that, that's a very big clue is that we're looking at a shallower, a shallower body of water at this point, okay? So we don't know what the drop-off is, though. We don't know those drop-offs because around Amity, there are some steep drop-offs that are very close to shore. That's why we have a term called the shallows. And then the, after the shallows, we have drop-offs to very deep water. And that's actually very similar to some parts of Martha's Vineyard. If you actually go to the beach where uh, they filmed the attack on Chrissy Watkins uh, in Martha's Vineyard, the water drops off really deep. Like you can walk off, you're only 10 feet off, and, uh, and you're already 7, 8 feet in water if you're only 10 feet off the beach. And a couple more feet and you're in 10 feet of water. So uh, that, that is actually, that, that's a realistic term, that if you had a, a dock that extends into the water uh, in some parts of Amity Island, that you would have a drop-off where it goes to 10, maybe 20 feet. And that's just to start. And then it, then it would taper off as you go down low. So we could be going from uh, shallow water to really deep water. But right now the tide is going out. So uh, we have to keep that in mind. So we have to keep that in mind. As he says, the, the tide's taking right out. We hear the chain rattling off the wood. That means that the chain is paying out. So we go to Brody, and he's looking at the National Geographic, and he's looking at his book, his book information, learning about sharks. Now, this means that we don't know how much time has surpassed when we go back to Charlie and Den Herder. So we see the inner tube start twitching in the water. And then it takes off. Hey. Hey, he's taking it. He's taking it. He's taking it. Hey. Hey, go. Go, 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 go. 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 
Okay, right there we see the final, so the final 25 feet of chain start paying out. So well, we have to assume that the bait was 25 feet away and it still had half the length. So we're dealing with 50 feet. That shark grabs the bait and starts running with it, okay? We, and we also know that because of the score, the John Williams score, that this is the great white. This is the shark. This is not another shark. This is the shark. So it grabs the uh, bait and it starts heading away and it rattles off the final 25 feet. As we are now 50 feet from the dock, the end of the dock breaks off and goes into the water, and there goes Charlie into the water. Actually, they both go into the water, but Charlie's still on the piece of dock. So he falls off. Another thing we don't see is we don't see how far Charlie was on that uh, floating piece of dock until he fell off of it. Was he 10 feet, 15 feet? How far did he get? So as we see the dock going away from the camera, you have to think now that the shark is 25, it is now 50 feet in that direction. So 50 feet, it's, it's uh, 25, then the tail, and then another 25 to the end of the 25 foot shark. So it's way out there, okay, 50 feet. Charlie's swimming back. making noise in the water, and here goes, the dock starts turning. Charlie, take my word for it. Don't look back. Swim, Charlie. Swim. Come on, Charlie. So what's interesting is, as it turns, you have to think that the radius of the chain, okay, is 50 feet out inside the shark's mouth. As it's going around, as it's swinging around and it's turning, the shark is not underneath right underneath that piece of wood. It's actually turning. So now the shark would be coming from the side as Charlie's swimming. Maybe this is one of the times I wish I did have visuals on the Jaws Obsession because now the shark would be coming in a, in a it would be arcing in a radius and then coming from the side of where Charlie is swimming and that's causing the wood to turn. And as it's coming to the side, as it starts pulling that way, the shark is now 50 feet over there. So if you look now in this wide shot, there's Charlie about 50 feet out front, okay? But that doesn't necessarily mean the shark is right in line. It's actually probably off to the side. Now, this is the interesting part. We don't know where that shark loses the bait in its mouth. And we have to look at, there's two things that are happening here, okay? We don't know if the shark bails. At what point does the shark bail? and it reaches the shallows, which is where Charlie's swimming. Charlie doesn't necessarily have to make it to the dock, the rest of the dock. He's just got to make it to where it's too shallow, and the Great White senses that it's going to beach itself. It's, you know, there's running out of water, so it's just going to bail and struggle and get back into the drop-off. That's what we're looking at here. We don't know the topography of the undersea landscape. And that's the X factor that we have to be looking at, that that's going to cause the shark to behave in a certain pattern. And it's going to be, and, and what we do see is that this shark has specific behavioral patterns throughout the movie of Jaws. Why do we know this? Now let's go. We're going to, we're going to leave here. This is at 27 minutes when it's chasing Charlie back, 27 minutes and five seconds. We're going to leave here. We're going to go back and we're going to review the three victims that we see 
of Jaws. And we're going to see a commonality that shows up. Let's go first to Chrissy Watkins. Okay, so what happens with Chrissy? She gets uh, bumped, she gets pulled under, and then she comes back up and then grabbed again and starts getting dragged around. Okay, so, so, so remember that. Goes under, comes back up. Let's go to the next victim, which is Alex Kittner. So he comes up, the shark comes up underneath Alex Kittner's legs. We see Alex Kittner get attacked, pulled under, and then he comes back up, then pulled under again. Okay, so we see Alex Kittner go under. He comes back up in that geyser of blood. It's a very gruesome scene. And then he gets pulled under again. So what we have is we have a little bit of a behavioral pattern going on that the shark does on its attack. Let's go to the third victim, which is the estuary victim. And remember, we do have Ben Gardner, who ne isn't necessarily killed by the shark, isn't taken by the shark, um, but he is killed by the shark. We, we broke that down in our uh, famous episode 61, one of the highest downloaded episodes of the entire series. Uh, so to find out what happens to Ben Gardner, go to episode 61. But also uh, we have uh, Ben Gardner's first mate that is missing as well. Presumably he is killed by the shark, but we do not have footage of his attack. But what we do have is the estuary victim that happens on the 4th of July. Hey guys, you guys okay over there? So if you watch how the famous scene here where the shark pulls the estuary victim right underwater, okay? But then what do we have? We cut to Michael Brody. He's seen this happen. And then we go back to the girls on the beach. And there goes the estuary victim's leg. So we have the estuary victim gets pulled under, comes back up and then gets pulled under again. So what we have is we have a pattern by this great white, this shark, of attacking, dragging, and then releasing, and then going back in for the uh, final attack, pulling under, and, and then obviously the killing of the victim. And that is what we have to look at, is if you go to the, this fits the, the holiday roast scene, in that it attacks, runs, and then it releases, okay, because it's sensing something's off or it's maybe it just, I don't believe that hook ever set inside the mouth of the shark. We saw how difficult it is to hook a shark and uh, the struggle that happens that there's no way that shark's breaking that chain. If the hook was set properly, the shark shook it out or released the, uh, the bait as it got into the shallows because it it started going after a larger bait, which was Charlie, and then it got into the shallows and then obviously releases the bait. Let's go back to the Charlie scene. So we do know that there, that's the behavioral pattern of this shark. Catch, release, and then go back in for the kill. And that's why this fits the holiday roast scene. So at this point, we know that Charlie's swimming and Den Herder's saying, take my word for it, don't look back, swim, Charlie. 
the shark possibly already released the bait from its mouth and is taking off to deeper water. It's just the momentum of this massive body and the momentum of, uh, uh, of, of the pole is now making that dock go forward. And it's not necessarily pulling that dock all the way. Uh, uh, we don't know when the shark releases. So that's the, that we're never given that uh, visual, we're never given that visual information. But what we do know is that there's no way, there's no way the shark is going to go that close to the dock because that's the shallower area of the shore. The shark is way too big. So uh, what's, what Steve, director Steven Spielberg is doing is he's using the end part of that wood that has this rush of current behind it that he's just using that as a symbol for the shark, which is very exciting. It's a, it's a great sequence, and it inspired a certain aspect of the Book of Quint, as you guys, as everyone will read in the early chapters of the Book of Quint. From all the information that shows is that the shark was coming from the side and made a, a final burst towards Charlie, uh, lost the bait out of its mouth. And remember that one th time it tried to regurgitate, it tried to release what was in its mouth, which was what? The scuba tank at the end of the movie. It could not. My theory, I've always thought that that scuba tank, the, um, the actual valve, the uh, regulator valve that's on the end of the scuba tank is lodged inside the front gill on its left side. And that's what's happening is that that shark, it can't release it. It can't get it out of its mouth because that valve is lodged inside the front gill of the shark. And, uh, and, and so it's swimming and it's also very tired at that point. Remember, Quint tired the shark out. Now every, everyone seems to overlook that because we're all focused on what happens with the orca and the cage and, and the orca blows up. But what we don't see was Quint had three barrels on the shark trying to draw it into the shallows, had it full blast. That shark was swimming at max speed, hauling those barrels, tiring out. So this is a tired, dogged shark, and it can't release, it can't shake that tank out of its mouth. The regulator valve is lodged inside the gill, and that's why Brody gets the kill shot and sitting there in the corner of its jaws, that's a beautiful, if you look at that whole arc, it's a beautiful little thing, but it shows you that the shark's behavior was st still trying to shake that out of its mouth because that's what it did. It, it, it does not go in and swallow whole, as Quint put it. it. It goes in and it tries to hit once, releases, and then it goes back in and hits again. Very interesting. All very interesting stuff. So that's what I believe happens is um, if, if you look at it that way, if you look at the lay of the land, one thing that director Spielberg never does, he never gives us an extremely wide establishing shot. So we don't see the actual, um, we don't get our bearings. We don't get actual visual measurements about how far out the dock goes to the water, what is the depth of the water, um, are, what about rock jetties and the shoreline on the sides? How close are we to those? Because I see there is a little bit of a rock jetty in the back in the background there. By keeping that information from us, we are now disoriented that we actually think that shark might be right underneath the piece of wood. It is not. And that is what's so cool about this is that he uses, he makes what would not be frightening if you gave too much information. He makes frightening by withholding the information. And that is why he was on point with this. That's why he is director Steven Spielberg, because he has that talent and he knows that in that frame, I can get 
people terrified if I don't give them too much visual information. But once we break this down, we can see that that shark never was even close to Charlie. It released and swam away, but we're still seeing the moving dock from the momentum. So very exciting, but that's what happened, Dave. Thank you. Great question. He has more questions that we're going to get to in later episodes. Thank you very much, Dave. Great email, great question, and hopefully we know a little bit more what's going on there with the holiday roast. Can we go home now? Let's stay on Jaws and let's just dive right into the topic of the day with episode 72, the Jaws MacGuffin. We now have to learn what is this term that I keep saying MacGuffin? What is an, what is a MacGuffin? Spelling M-A-C-G-U-F-F-I-N. I always have one of my earliest books that I ever soaked up was the Screenwriter's Bible by David Trottier. And the first time I heard this term was in this book when I was in the Coast Guard. And I was on an icebreaker sailing on the Pacific, and I remember reading this book and going through it. It says on page 27, Mr. Trottier writes, he's on the topic of different genres, and he says, With the thriller, the focus is on suspense more than action. In a thriller, an ordinary man or woman gets involved in a situation that becomes life-threatening. The, the bad guys desperately want the MacGuffin, a name Hitchcock gave to the plot device that often drives the thriller. Although the characters are after the MacGuffin, the audience cares more about the survival of the central character. So that's where I first heard the term. And if we go right over to, to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the term MacGuffin is defined as an object, event, or character in a film or story that serves to set and keep the plot in motion, despite usually lacking intrinsic importance. The history of that, it was made popular by Alfred Hitchcock, the director. The first person to use the MacGuffin as a word for a plot device was Alfred Hitchcock. He borrowed it from an old shaggy dog story in which some passengers on a train interrogate a fellow passenger carrying a large, strange-looking package. The, the fellow says the package contains a, quote, MacGuffin, which he explains is used to catch tigers in the Scottish Highlands. Hitchcock apparently appreciated the way the mysterious package holds the audience's attention and builds suspense. He recognized that an audience anticipating a solution to a mystery will continue to follow the story even if the initial interest grabber turns out to be irrelevant. If I go over to masterclass.com, what is a MacGuffin? They have a similar definition. They say the MacGuffin is a plot device used in films or books that sets the character into motion and drives the story. Usually the MacGuffin is revealed in the first act. It's credited to screenwriter Angus MacPhail, but however, the great film director Alfred Hitchcock popularized and mastered the use of the term. In his 1935 film, The 39 Steps, the MacGuffin is the plan for an advanced airplane engine. In his 1938 mystery thriller, The Lady Vanishes, the MacGuffin is a coded message contained in a piece of music. While we're on this, let's jump right over to what are some popular examples of MacGuffins in film. If we're talking movies, one of the uh, famous ones is in Pulp Fiction. The briefcase in Pulp Fiction would be the MacGuffin. Exactly what is in the briefcase is never revealed, but like all great MacGuffin, its contents are all, aren't all that important to the story. What is important is the journey it takes through the lives of the film's eccentric characters. And this is from digitaltrends.com in an article by Rick Marshall. I'll be putting these on the show notes, these articles that I'm referencing here. You can go through various movies and you can see that they might not use the term MacGuffin, but they have something that's driving the narrative. In Star Wars, it's the plans for the Death Star. That's what Princess Leia puts in R2-D2. 
this droid has secret plans, and that is the that is it's not necessarily that 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 is just what drives the characters. It puts the events into motion, is that term. So the, those plans for the Death Star are the MacGuffin. Steven Spielberg has used the MacGuffin in scripts that he directed in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant is the MacGuffin for that movie. So what did they what did the Ark of the Covenant do? It really wasn't the movie was not about the Ark of the Covenant. It was about who was going to find it and then get control of it and what was going to happen to it in the end. And then the characters are, all all the action is centered around the Ark of the Covenant. But also sometimes your MacGuffin might be a character in the movie. In Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg would have the, uh, Private Ryan himself was the MacGuffin. It was an actual character and that was the group was going to go find him and extract him. The group's pursuit of Private Ryan is fraught with sacrifice, and the object of their mission becomes an almost mythical figure during their journey across enemy-occupied territory. When they finally do locate Ryan, then they find that their mission is far from over. So you can see that this is usually, it's a it could be a character, it could be a figure, but it's not the central figure. It is not the main focus. And I'm going to bounce back to masterclass.com. There's two different uses for a MacGuffin. A MacGuffin is generally a physical object, but it can also be an intangible idea or force, such as love or power. Uh, contrary to Hitchcock, filmmaker George Lucas believes that a MacGuffin should be something that the audience cares about as much as the characters. That's why he used the plans for the Death Star in order to drive that narrative. There's two main uses of MacGuffins here on Masterclass.com. In an article, Writing 101, What is a MacGuffin? Learn about MacGuffins in film, literature, and popular culture. This article says that there are two main uses of MacGuffins. One, as a catalyst for the action of the story. The MacGuffin is what springs the character's either good guys or bad guys into action. Then there's number two. A MacGuffin can reveal character traits. The object of desire is the setup that propels the characters into action, and the subsequent reactions can illustrate character depth. So in Citizen Kane, the MacGuffin is Rosebud, just one word, the dying word of Charles Foster's Kane, uh, Charles Foster Kane saying Rosebud, that springs the reporter into action, trying to uncover the significance of that term. So there, there you have it. That's what the uh, MacGuffin is. So now what we're going to do is, now that we know and we have certain examples, and you can figure out if you if you take any movie, you uh, that that can lead to a very interesting discussion on what you think that MacGuffin for that movie is. Like if you take Back to the Future and the flux capacitor that was in the DeLorean time machine, the flux capa- it's not the time machine that's the MacGuffin; it's the flux capacitor. That is the MacGuffin. That's the thing. That is the thing that drives everything forward. It's what Marty uses to convince Doc Brown that he is from the future because he knows about it. And uh, also, that is what requires the power, the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity to, to power it up so it can actually go into time travel. Therein what lies why he has to wait for the bolt of lightning, so that keeps Marty in 1955 for a while. So that's what we're looking at is that, uh, so it's very interesting. It might be just a significant item, a little small item that's in the background that we that are only is only referenced a few times but that is what is actually driving the narrative something in the background like the flux capacitor in back to the future is driving the narrative it is make it is giving a reason why the characters are doing what they are doing and that is where we come to jaws what is the jaws macguffin what is the object or the catalyst that springs the characters into action the obvious answer is the shark 
The shark is the Jaws MacGuffin, okay? And using the term over at, uh, at masterclass.com, uh, the shark is the object that the characters are either in pursuit of or which serves as motivation for their actions. The shark in Jaws is only on screen for uh, four minutes. It's around four, it's less than five minutes. But yet, but yet, the shark was marketed as the antagonist of the film the force of evil that must be stopped. A series of marketing steps that Universal took, and it was the sign of the times. The sharks were not viewed as they are now. Scientific understanding did not reach the level, uh, and knowledge of sharks did not reach the level of awareness that we have now in our, just in our popular culture. Shark Week, Discovery Channel, shark scientists all over Instagram, YouTube, if you go back and listen to episode 58, Jaws Generation, that we talked about how modern day generations actually understand sharks different uh, in a completely different context than what they were back in 1975 when Jaws was released. So what was happening was there was a marketing, there were marketing steps and the sign of the times led to the sharks being villainized. And it also led to Jaws as understood as a monster shark movie. The big shark swimming up towards the girl on the surface of the water. It graced the cover of the novel, of Peter Benchley's novel, Jaws, that went on to go sell 20 million copies. When we have director Spielberg back last year, December uh, 2022, uh, right here on HollywoodReporter.com, Steven Spielberg says he truly regrets Jaws' influence on the decimation of the shark population. One of the things this article goes on, written by Abby White, Spielberg is quoted as saying, quote, I had to be resourceful in figuring out how to create suspense and terror without seeing the shark itself. Hitchcock did that, and I think Hitchcock was a tremendous guide for me in the way he was able to scare you without really seeing anything, Spielberg reflected. He goes on to say, it was just good fortune that the shark kept breaking. It was my good luck, and I think it's the audience's good luck too, because it's a scarier movie without seeing so much of the shark. We just highlighted the Charlie and the Holiday Roast scene, where less is more, and it, it becomes scary if you don't know exactly what's happening under the water. And that's where Spielberg right now is citing Alfred Hitchcock. Isn't it interesting that Alfred Hitchcock used this term, the MacGuffin, as a some sort of force or some sort of object that's driving the motion of the story, that's driving the characters. So we know Spielberg was a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan, with a lot of influences from director Hitchcock. Abby White continues in her article here. She says, when asked about how he would feel being on a desert island with surrounding water inhabited by sharks, Spielberg addressed the impact of the film's negative depiction of sharks. Spielberg says, quote, that's one of the things I still fear, not to get eaten by a shark, but that sharks are somehow mad at me for the feeding frenzy of crazy sport fishermen that happened after 1975, which I truly and to this day regret the decimation of the shark population because of the book and the film. He explained, I really, truly regret that. So what we have is we have director Spielberg. He regrets the negative, the film's negative depiction of sharks. And, and the impact of that. And what happened was, is that they lost control of that narrative, that with the marketing decisions and the understanding of the sharks at that time, that there was a negative depiction of sharks. 
Now, if you remember back on episode 58, I made the case here on the Jaws obsession that uh, with the Jaws generation, that Jaws created millions of more shark fans, shark scientists, underwater photographers, marine biologists. Jaws made marine biologists hip and cool. It was a net positive for the sharks in the long run. Yes, those few that, that there was a small time right there where sharks were villainized, but it created the popularity. So someone like myself that grew up in the wake of Jaws then wanted more shark material, shark books, Discovery Channel, jumps on with Shark Week, and the rest is history. So the case was made, if you go over and listen to episode 58, Jaws Generation, how Jaws actually helped sharks. It became a net positive for sharks in the long run. So now we need to lateral that over with the understanding that the shark is the MacGuffin. It is the main object that drives the narrative as it stands here. We're only, we are only hours away to the book of Quint is going to change the narrative. That is what we are doing. We are changing that narrative from Jaws being known as a monster shark movie. That is one of the objectives that I set out to do here with the Jaws obsession. If you've noticed uh, the Jaws obsession, we are now on episode 72. There is, this is only the third episode that will have the title card that has the shark on it. That means 69 episodes, nothing showing the great white shark. Why is that? That was a conscious decision because what I wanted to show is that this is not a monster shark movie. This is a human movie and the shark is not the antagonist. The antagonist, what is the, the definition of an antagonist according to the American Heritage Dictionary is one who opposes and contends another, an adversary, the principal character in opposition to the protagonist or hero of a narrative or drama. And I don't believe that the shark is the principal character in opposition to the protagonist or hero, i.e. Brody. I think Brody's principal opposition is Mayor Vaughn. And that is what I wanted to highlight here is that when you have these, when you give context and when you, when you supply context in the form of a prequel, what we are going to effectively do is we are taking that shark away from being portrayed as the antagonist of Jaws, not the enemy. The shark is just the MacGuffin. The shark is in the background doing what it's doing, but there is a reason why it's doing what it's doing. And it's not because it's a monster shark out just to eat people. That there is actually, there are facts of Amity Island that are explained in the book of Quint that establish the context to show that the shark is now the MacGuffin. And I think we have been successful thus far showing Jaws to be there is much more going on in the movie than just the shark attacks. So with a backstory to Quint, a published prequel going around the world, when more of the story is learned here, there is going to be new context that's understood as you watch Jaws. Effectively, the sharks in the book of Quint, when I wrote the book of Quint, are the MacGuffin. I use the sharks as something that just ties everything together. This is not about uh, Quint versus the sharks per se. This, the sharks are just there. It's a reason for the characters to spring into action. They are not the enemy and they are not the antagonist of the book. With that understanding, as you read the book of Quint, you seamlessly blend right into the movie Jaws, establishing that the shark in Jaws is not the antagonist. It's just, it's just a MacGuffin. This is my appeal to Universal Pictures. And as a group, 
as we've all come together under this broadcast and as we are coming around and as, as we are all coming together and surrounding around this book of Quint, which is released to the world, we are now appealing to Universal Pictures and to Mr. Steven Spielberg. Without a prequel, without the book of Quint, we are going to leave Jaws to interpretation for the next 50 years. Jaws is just going to go out there as a sign of the times monster shark movie. It's just going to be left to interpretation. Or with a prequel to Jaws, the book of Quint, a cinematic experience, there is a redemption arc at hand where the antagonist can now be clarified. The antagonist of Jaws can now be clarified. And the sharks are given the Hitchcock treatment made into the MacGuffin, and they are not the evil forces that must be stopped. What Mr. Spielberg and Universal Pictures can now do, almost as if they are rebranding Jaws, they are now taking the monster shark element out of it by issuing the Book of Quint, by following the story that's in that novel, that Jaws is going through a redemption, a rebranding, to where it is not the monster shark movie that many have grown to understand it as. And that's the point here. And that's what's very exciting. It's very exciting what we are on here. We are on the eve of the global release, the worldwide publication of the Book of Quint. And at this time now, with permission from Benchley IPLLC, with permission from Wendy Benchley, Jaws and the ethical treatment of sharks, the scientific understanding of sharks, is better off with the Book of Quint than without. And I still believe after tonight, when you read the book, you will agree and you will see Jaws in a whole new light. We're going to give everybody time to read the book in their own time. But in the early part of next year, we're going to be starting to talk about absolute plot elements and things that are in the book of Quint that change the depiction of sharks, that change the understanding of what the shark is in the movie Jaws. That it, that, and we... And, and the term MacGuffin will be used more in the future. The shark is the equivalent to the Ark in Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Flux Capacitor in Back to the Future. It is something that is in the background and it is just it is motivating the characters to spring into action. So can this successfully be done? I believe it can. And with a cinematic treat with a cinematic release, with a movie prequel by Universal Pictures, the Book of Quint, they can lock that in time for the next 50 years where audiences will be able to enjoy the prequel and then Jaws, and even Jaws 2 can be explained. And with the understanding of the sharks as we know them today, uh, Jaws will continue to be the greatest movie of all time for the next 50 years and beyond. Thank you for listening to the Jaws Obsession. This has been Episode 72, The Jaws MacGuffin. Show me the way to go What an exciting time. Hours away, hours away. The Book of Quint. Wherever books are sold, you can find it now. There's a link tree in the description of this broadcast. You can find links there to wherever your books are sold. Walmart now listing, listing the Book of Quint for December 1st delivery for U.S. readers. With every book read, Universal can see that it's a ticket for a future movie. So this is our chance as a Jaws community, as communities of shark, shark fans, Henry Cavill fans. We're all coming together to show that this is a very big possibility and we want to see this as a movie. Exciting times are ahead.
The movie Jaws is copyrighted property of Universal Studios. Any references and sampling from the movie Jaws in this episode is intended to fall within Section 107 of the Copyright Act. The copyrighted materials are fairly used for the purposes of criticism, comment, reporting, teaching, and research. Materials used here are protected by the fair use guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act. All rights reserved to the copyright owners. Okay, here we go. The Book of Quinn is ready for the big stage, and we are global now. If you can, take photos on shelves. If you see it in the bookshops and you see it on the shelf over there in the wild, take some photos. Send it to me over here at jawsob2025 at gmail.com. I'd love to see them, and we could talk about it on the show, and I could put it in our show notes. Also, we're going to need your reviews. Reviews are very important. Send me your reviews here at that email, and we can read those on the shows as well. Thank you for listening. It's been great, and this is a very, very exciting time. Until next show, farewell and adieu, and please show me the way to go home. <laughs>